Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of After Work Drinks With. This week, we're talking to Alexis Haynes, who you will probably know by her maiden name, Alexis Nyers. Alexis was a pop culture sensation in the late noughties. She was the star of the reality TV series Pretty Wild and is best known for her involvement in the infamous Bling Ring, a group of Los Angeles teens who were sentenced to prison for a string of burglaries of high-profile celebrities in 2009. The case was immortalised by Sofia Coppola's 2013 movie The Bling Ring, in which Emma Watson starred as Alexis, portraying the then 19-year-old as a superficial, materialistic valley girl with no substance. It was a description first made by Nancy Jo Sales in her Vanity Fair article, The Suspects Wore Louvertons, but it wasn't exactly accurate. In fact, viewed 10 years after the fact, we think Alexis is one of the most misunderstood women in modern popular culture. Portrayed as a fame-obsessed teen and mocked by the internet, Haynes was actually a trauma-informed sexual assault survivor and teenage drug addict. Now, at 29, she is a drugs and alcohol counsellor and a public advocate for youth addiction and sobriety. With her husband, Evan Haynes, she co-runs the Aloe House Recovery Centre, which has helped literally thousands of people achieve sobriety. She's written a book and launched a podcast on the same topic, both called Recovering from Reality. And to top it all off, she's a registered doula and advocates for the racial gap in maternal mortality. Alexis is such an incredible person and she was really open with us about the sexist treatment she faced in the media and the court system and talks about how it feels to have public's perception of you be so at odds with who you actually are. Because let's be honest, who on earth would want the teenage version of themselves plastered everywhere for the world to remember you by? Because certainly not me, that's why I have no friends from high school. We think you are going to love this conversation and if you do... Please share or leave us a review on iTunes. And if you want to find out more about Alexis, listen to her podcast, Recovering From Reality. Just a quick warning that this episode discusses drug addiction, mental health, sexual assault, and suicidal ideation, and it might not be appropriate for everyone. Hello, firstly, welcome to the podcast. Hi. The reason we wanted to talk to you is because we both saw you on Z-Way's show. 
mm-hmm. and you were incredible. Um, and it kind of just got us thinking about what a misunderstood kind of figure you are because we felt like the public perception of you versus what you're actually like in real life, there's quite a big divide between those two things. So we kind of just wanted to start by asking you what it feels like when people have an idea of you that's very divorced from what you're actually like as a person. Um, Yeah, that's something I would say, and not to sound like I'm now like so woke and nothing affects me. It's just that used to be something that I really clung on to um, and that caused me to feel really distraught, especially when I was younger. And now as like an adult woman who's approaching 30, who has done a lot of internal work, it doesn't bother me as much. I think what um, I think is so cool about it is when people realize like, oh, that's Alexis Nyers. And then they're like shocked by it. And, and it inspires people that like, they too can change and that they can have a different experience in their lives and 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 um and shift because the truth is that while i mean i was not a very likable person during pretty wild um in the bling ring and the truth is that while i wasn't as terrible as like the media portrayed me to be i was still pretty terrible Like, I didn't really have any care for my life, my family members' lives. My life was in shambles. I, you know, at at the core essence of my being is someone who is loving and compassionate and empathetic and caring. But during that time period of my life, I think the drugs just really turned me into kind of a monster. And so um, I think that if anything, people who see me today should just know that this is what taking care of your mental health and getting sober can do for you. You don't have to get sober to have these great awakenings, to shift your perspective on life, to um, start, you know, changing and evolving as a human being. But for me, that's what it took was getting sober. And then as you've gotten older, did you kind of have a realization from a feminist perspective that what happened to you in the media was really fucked up? Or did you know that kind of the whole way through? Um, I think I knew it the whole way through. I just didn't really put all of the pieces together until my late 20s. Um, There was a lot of stuff that happened in my court case that was really sexist, like one of the lead detectives calling me hot or sexy in an interview with one of my co-defendants. There was some stuff that went on. It was reported later on after I'd gotten sober about that same detective going on to like basically begin in a very inappropriate relationship with a witness who was supposed to testify against me and there was a lot of texts that could be easily perceived as abuse um and then of course with like the infamous nancy joe call and just the fact that like in reality and people don't understand this i had a minuscule part 
in the bling ring. And that, I don't say that to minimize the impact that that one night had because that one night impacted somebody's life for the rest of their life. But I say that because I was not the bling ring mastermind. I didn't plan any burglaries. I only was at one house. Um, and I knew Nick Prugo, and that was it. I didn't know any of my other co-defendants personally. And so I think that, yeah, and, it, and I wish that I could say that I think that the media has evolved to a place where we would easily call out, like, the fact that, um, or that we wouldn't see this happening now, and yet we do. We still see it. Um, the biggest thing would be, you know, with the Nancy Joe. Um, and I think that that's on my show. It showed me getting really worked up and emotional about little brown BB heels and me wearing a tweed skirt and like runway walking or whatever she said into, um, into court. But what I was really upset was the way that she was portraying me in the public as someone I'm sorry, she said I wore Louboutins and, the BB, and I was yelling about BB heels. It was not about the BB heels. It was about the public portrayal of who I was and basically insinuating that I did not care about this case, that I wasn't taking this seriously, when that couldn't be further from the truth. I was taking it very seriously. I... I felt horrible for the victim and also was really scared and in total survival mode myself because as someone who was an active heroin addict, I knew that jail for me meant forced sobriety, which I was not ready to deal with at that time. But that's what we thought when we were revisiting that whole thing is that what you were saying was a really valid criticism of someone kind of portraying a, a journalist portraying you as a young woman in a sexist way that was not reflective mm -hmm. of how you felt as a three-dimensional person and yet because you didn't have the like dialogue or the delivery the that language a grown woman had yeah mm -hmm. then therefore it was mocked whereas if someone wrote an op-ed for the new york times about it it wouldn't be mocked but the issue was the same thing like it's kind of crazy to rewatch it now in like yeah. that light it's definitely interesting, and I'm hoping that um, that we will we as human beings. And I say that because a lot of the heat that I get is actually from women. It's actually predominantly from women. Um, so we as women need to look at our own internal biases based off of what we were grown up being taught about, um, feminism and just our own womanhood in general. It's just an interesting, um, it's just an, I guess it's just like food for thought. Like, I think we all need to take a look at our own internalized biases all the time and I try to do that when I whenever I read an article or watch something for me like the most recent thing is I love the housewives right I love the housewives franchise I used to hate it now I really like it quarantine changed that for me 
Um, but I'm watching the Beverly Hills Housewives, and after each episode, it gets like crazier and crazier towards the end, right? It's like this chaos with Denise Richards and Brandy, okay? And one is claiming to have sex with the other, and the, and the whole thing I have to look, and it's like I'm starting to make judgments, and I need to be able to like zoom out, look at my own biases here, and then form an opinion. And I feel like a lot of people just don't do that. And it's because we're so programmed to just jump down each other's throats now that it doesn't leave space for that pause that is critical. Mm. And speaking of um, reality TV, you were actually on Pretty Wild before all of the Bling Ring drama, which I think a lot of people wouldn't know about you. Um, and the show was started, I think, in the second season of Keeping Up with the Kardashians. So you guys were kind of meant to be this alternative version of the Kardashians. Um, what was it like to be doing a reality show in what was essentially kind of the golden era of reality TV? Yeah, it's interesting. So, yeah, that that is a common. A lot of people think I got the show because of the bling ring. But I actually had signed my contract with E prior to getting arrested and my involvement. Um, so I had signed my contract in late June. The burglary took place in July. We started filming in October and I was arrested the second day of filming. Um, it's definitely interesting. I look now at um, a lot of the like hypersexuality that was like apparent in the show. My mom taking pictures of my of Tess in the shower was, you know, pretty hard to like watch back then. Me dancing on a pole at 17, 18 was hard for me to watch. Not that I have anything against women owning their sexuality. I just think for me and my family that sexuality was something that was always like a really blurred line and I, it just makes me feel kind of gross about the whole thing. Um, I will say it's different. Nothing can prepare you for reality TV. Nothing can prepare you for reality TV. You don't know what you're getting yourself into. Um, it's interesting. I had um, Caitlin Bristow on my podcast, and she said the same thing. She was like, you think that you're just signing up for this thing that's going to show the real life, but it's not. You're filming for four, sometimes five days of content that they're going to smush into a 30-minute episode, really 26 minutes or 22 minutes because they have to put in commercials. So they're going to use the juiciest bits. They're going to cut out all of the other things. A perfect example of this is like when Nancy was interviewing me at my house and I just seemed like I was bragging about all of my clothes and saying all of these like really silly things, which to be fair, like any 18-year-old might be talking like that, right? Like if you interviewed some TikTok star right now and she, you know what I mean? Like it's like you probably would hear the same thing coming out of their mouth. But it's interesting because I, you know, there's parts where I'm like, I love Angelina Jolie. But then they cut out the fact that I said, because I love her philanthropic work and I think that what she's doing with adopting these children is incredible and I think that she's a great mother. 
and she has a hot husband. So it's like then just like the hot husband thing goes in. So nothing can really prepare you for that. Um, and then the other part of it is that reality TV isn't reality. Like I have a call time that I have to show up for, hair and makeup I have to show up for. Um, and then there are scenes where you're not given a script, but you're given kind of, how would I put it? Framework, right? Like framework as to how this scenario is going to transpire. So nothing can really prepare you for it. It's definitely um, a wild experience. Um, and yeah, I'm grateful that there was no social media when I had my show um, because I know that my mental health would have, I'm, I might have killed myself. And I don't say that lightly, but like I was already in such a bad place. I just feel really grateful that back then we didn't have the Instagrams and all of that stuff. Well, mental health is like an interesting thing to touch on because we felt as well what you just said, a lot of the scenes or the things that were done in the show, also just the fact that you're a teenager, add to that the fact that you had an active drug addiction. It, it feels now looking back on it like the kind of thing that the adults creating the show should have intervened and maybe had a bit of an obligation to not be creating a show like that. Do you, do you feel like that or do you think that's not a fair criticism? When you say the adults, do you mean like the network and the production company or do you mean like my yeah. parents? Yeah, I, I would say the network and production company. Um, I don't know exactly yeah. how old you were when your mum signed the contracts, but yeah, yeah, any adults in the room considering you were a kid. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So um, I signed my contract, um, I think, like, three or four days after my 18th birthday. Um, and, you know, my mom, it's with my, regards to my parents, like, my mom had no idea what she was doing. She probably had no business being a mom, although I'm glad she is because here I am today. Um, but with regards to, like, production and the network, I would like to think, although this is not a reality, um, because we've seen it not just in my show, but in other shows, when it comes to matters like suicidality, um, severe manic episodes, um, drug, active drug addiction, that there would be some, like a, a framework in place, um, but I know that I'm, you know, I'm not the only, <laughs> I think the reason why we got the show is because of our craziness. And so I understand that the network loved that. They thrived off of that, right? So that I get. Um, but when it came down to like my addiction and um, planting pills in my bathroom and then having my mom go find said pills that the producer just put there and then confronting me on national television calling me like an addict and stuff. Yeah, I don't agree with that. Um, the production, the producers themselves, like they have a job to do. I don't blame the producers at all. Um, I, I think that it would be nice if networks began to realize the severity and like what addiction and severe mental health actually looks like.
and and that there is a line you know that should not be crossed when somebody is in that Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless ready to get 30 30 ready get 30 ready get 20 20 20 ready get 20 20 ready get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month so give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees promo rate for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com hey it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters May 17th do you want to tell people the big news All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com/switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month, unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month, face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 53124 get 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after 6 months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Position. Um and you mentioned it earlier that you were petrified of um what the whole bling ring thing would encompass because you were scared of going to prison um as a heroin addict and that's what ended up happening um what was your experience kind of like having to go cold turkey in that environment and were there available resources for you um so <laughs> not here in the good old USA um at least not at the time i don't know what the circumstances are like now although I know in California and we have I believe the largest um prison industrial complex of any other state in the US um meaning we house the most inmates um I believe that we are actively working towards um addiction um and mental health I'm forgetting the exact terminology but basically where you would be given or granted support rather than jail time which i think is an incredible thing and we need to move that way in general just across the board um but no the reality for most of us drug addicts is that we get into situations that um lead us to going to jail and what happens is we have such a um dehumanizing experience in jail that when we get out we have so much shame and then even more compiled trauma that we end up getting out and just doing the same thing over and over and over again because there are no resources so the first time that i went to jail i had to kick cold turkey and it was terrible um not just terrible but life threatening i ended up having a, such a severe kidney infection um that by the time that i got down to the infirmary it was almost too late i hadn't consumed any fluids in um 2 days i'd been violently vomiting um for several days at that point was just overall really really sick um and then when i got down to the infirmary they put me in a room on the floor with an iv running on a mat that had somebody else's blood on it and i stayed there for probably close to like 12 or 14 hours because 
they needed to give me so many fluids. And then when I got back to my cell, they put me on a liquid diet. Listen, I made it through it. It was brutal. Um, and when I got out, I didn't have any resources. I had no money. I had blown all my money on drugs and attorney fees. And the show had just wrapped like three months prior. So that just kind of gives you a look at what my situation was like. And I, and I had no resources. I didn't have somebody that was like, hey, I think you need to go to rehab. Or maybe you should try AA or NA. Or here's this therapist number. So I had all this compounded trauma. And I had every intention of staying sober. And then two weeks later, I was back to shooting up heroin. Like that I just I didn't know anything else all of the pain all of the emotional pain and all of the trauma that I had incurred as a child was still there unprocessed and the only thing that fixed it was drugs um I'm really lucky and I talk about this often um that the second time that I was arrested I went back into jail kicked cold turkey again terrible experience but the judge judge peter espinoza i always say his name because i'm extremely grateful instead of sending me to six years in prison he sentenced me to a year in treatment but here's the thing had i not had treatment available to me by a drug and alcohol treatment center that wanted to basically use my name as like, hey, we're taking in Alexis Nyers, which I'm so grateful for, but most people don't have that. So it's a privilege that I had that. There is no system in place right now for people who get caught with possession of heroin to not go to jail and instead go to rehab or have resources in place for them. So I got really lucky the second time around, and it worked for me. I'm like proof that this thing works for a lot of people, you know, going to treatment instead of prison. Um, and it's a shame that there aren't more resources here because of our current healthcare system. Well, we watched the documentary 13th, and that was like a very shocking mm -hmm. insight into the prison industrial system, but also into how uh, drug addiction switched from being treated as a health, public health issue to a crime issue. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, people who know anything about addiction know that very often it's masking trauma or reaction to trauma, um, which you just touched on. So we wanted to talk to you a bit about your experience of realizing that drugs were, I think you described as a band-aid for trauma and how you kind of went about uh, healing that because it's something we've talked about a lot in the podcast and with other guests before. Yeah. Yeah. I, I quickly realized that, um, you know, I remember the moment where I was like, drugs aren't the problem, honey. Drugs are the solution. You're the problem. You're the problem. All of this stuff that you are not willing to look at is the problem. The drugs worked for as long as they work for, and now they're not working anymore. And it's up to you to do this work. So yeah, I had a lot of compounded trauma. My um, trauma began when I was really little. My parents divorced when I was three. My sexual abuse started around four or five. Um, that Those rape incidents took 
uh, were at the hand of an older family member. It lasted for a couple of years. My dad was a very um, manic um, alcoholic who was physically violent towards me. Um, my mom was this free-loving, pot-smoking hippie that couldn't really be bothered with me and all of the trauma that was happening. Um, she had her own issues that she needed to deal with. Um, you know, my drug addiction started really early on because of all of the chaos in my household. And then I started partying in Hollywood, which led to many other bad incidences of being raped, being held at gunpoint, things like that, okay? So just to give your audience some background, there was years and years and years of pain that I needed to look at. Um, and I talk about this a lot, and I think it's important for people to understand. Sometimes when we get newly sober, we're not actually ready to deal with that trauma. Sometimes we just need to feel okay for a while. And so that's why I'm so grateful that I was sentenced to a full year in treatment, and I always advocate for long-term treatment. And I don't mean in an inpatient setting. I mean in in supportive, you know, maybe you're doing sober living plus outpatient, like you're in an environment where you're actively being supported and held while you're dealing with this pain. So um, I remember the first time I told a therapist about my sexual abuse. And um, she said she wanted, she was a mandated reporter. And that meant she was going to have to report my abuse to the police. And um, after that day, I no longer talked to her anymore because I wasn't ready to deal with that. Um, and so, yeah, I just think that it's... The work is never done. I think that what's been interesting for me in my experience is that I've been able to live life and I've been able to show up for myself and for others. And as a result, um, you know, things have come up in relationship challenges and otherwise, just like everybody else has their stuff, you know, that comes up for them. And I think what's interesting about you know, being in a therapeutic environment, continuing with therapy, which I did for a total of six years, is that when something does come up, we begin to learn to question everything, I guess is what I would say. And so we begin to go, is this fight that I'm having with my husband really about this? Or is it about something else? It's probably about something else. Okay, now I need to go to my therapist and see what that is. You know, even down, and this might seem a little bit woo-woo, to you guys, but it's been my experience. When, as early as I can remember, my mom called me a hypochondriac. Okay, uh, she would say that I was so dramatic and whatever else. But really, that was just her way of dismissing what was happening right under her, and she wanted to kind of brush it under the rug, and so she made me the problem child. And so for years, I would have all of these like health issues coming up eventually. So I would be 
um, uh, you know, what, what ended up in the beginning being her denying my experience ended up me starting to have, um, it ended up being me starting to have actual physical ailments and things that were experiences that were happening in my life or these like cry for help. So then during my drug addiction, everything was obviously already chaotic. And then I noticed a couple of years into my sobriety when I was having all of these chronic nonstop health issues that maybe, and this is when I started learning about the mind-body connection, maybe a lot of this pain that I'm having and these experiences that I'm having are actually me wanting attention, like me needing to be heard, and I'm not being heard. And so then I started working with my shaman and my therapist to like figure out like what were these things. Um, And what do you know, when I figured out what they were, all of my ailments went away, and I didn't experience them anymore. Um, so for me, it's just really been about exploring my mind, figuring out who I am, working with an incredible therapist. I've done EMDR, I've done neurofeedback, I've done cognitive behavioral therapy, um, I've done like name a, any modality under the sun. I've tried it, <laughs> um, you know, medication, going medication free, herbal supplements, acupuncture, yoga, meditation. Um, and the biggest ones that have, that have worked for me, um, I would say are definitely having a very strong spiritual practice, which includes meditation, seeing a good, caring, trauma-informed therapist, and surrounding myself with people who get it, who understand Um, I think community is huge. I think finding a community of people who are doing this work is so important because sometimes you need someone to carry you through the pain of your experiences. The body-mind connection is so interesting. I'm reading um, The Body Keeps the Score at the moment, and it's just mind-blowing. And we were going to – I was going to ask you about – you know, obviously therapy is such an important tool, but then recovering from trauma, a lot of people don't have access to therapy. So I'm so glad you touched on things like meditation and yoga and um, having other people that have experienced the same thing as you. Because I think that a lot of people think they can't afford therapy, so they just are at a loss. Yeah, and I mean, there's so many amazing online courses now, um, and they may not be by licensed professionals, but like AA isn't licensed professionals. Um, I have a course and many of my other friends in the spiritual community have a course. Mine is not so much on spirituality. It's more about looking at our subconscious belief systems and analyzing, um, where they're rooted in and how we can clear those and things like that. So there are options that can assist you at any price point. I think, getting a journal and a piece of paper and having a compassionate, empathetic friend. And when I say that, I mean someone who's not going to shame you, judge you, try to give you unsolicited advice, someone who will just really hold space for you and listen to you um, can be as good as a therapy session for sure. 
Um, we wanted to touch back on prison quickly in the context of race, um, which is something mm-hmm. you talked to Z-Way about. So we wanted to know the ways in which race informed either your expectations going into prison or how you think it affected your experience in prison in terms of later sentencing or how you treated or experienced being yeah. there. Yeah, so I've touched on this a, a number of times um, before Z-Way, and I'm grateful that she asked me that question because I think it's um, it's always, like I said, good to question everything. So when I initially was sentenced, I was very scared. I had heard all the horror stories about, you know, um, race wars and how dangerous prison is and how scared I should be like to the point where I had been like working out tireless tirelessly because I thought that I was gonna have to go in there and like protect myself and while stuff that's crazy absolutely happens in jail that was not my experience it became very clear to me early on that when I was in jail I was the safest person in there because of the color of my skin. Um, And this is why I'm so passionate about talking about things like bail reform. Um, I don't know if I shared this on Z-Way, but I'll share it here. When I went into jail, I was put into PC, protective custody. Um, And it's a place where they house high profile criminals, okay? Not only that, but like people who are in there for murder, who are mentally unstable, who can't be with the general population. And so there was this amazing woman, I'll leave out her name for her anonymity, um, but I got into jail and I didn't understand how jail worked. So when you arrive at jail, you get one outfit, I think three or four pairs of underwear, a couple pairs of socks, a sheet, and... That's really it. And so I didn't know that I would need things like shower shoes to buy a razor, to buy a pencil, to buy paper, to buy soap. They don't give you soap. To buy shampoo. Um, I didn't know any of this stuff. And there was this incredible woman in there who came to my cell on the second day that I was in. And she saw that I was sick. And she began taking care of me. She shared her commissary goods with me. She gave me her shower shoes because you cannot walk. The showers are so disgusting that you'll get a bacterial infection if you go in without shoes on your feet. Um, So I couldn't shower. Um, And so she lended me these things and told me what I needed to know. And I learned more about her story. And she was a mother of, I believe, six. Um, They were all pretty young. When she went in, she had been in there for about 18 months at the time fighting her case. When she went in, her youngest um, child was one years old. And her oldest was about 12. And she had been in there for the last year and a half or so. Um, because her, the father of her children had been arrested in this big drug bust and, um, she was in the car with him when it happened and they took her in two and charged her 
um, as an accomplice in his crimes. Now, whether she was guilty or not is up to a judge and jury, although we know that oftentimes juries can um, uh, be racist and there can be issues there. Um, but this woman had been in jail for almost two years fighting this case all because she couldn't afford bail. And what was happening while she was in there was she was becoming more and more traumatized. Her children stopped showing up to visit her as much. She didn't see family as often as she once did. They stopped writing her. You know what I mean? They're too busy now to pick up the phone because the older child is babysitting to help with the funds. The younger children are going to work with the auntie and the uncle. Um, you know what I mean? The grandma is now working to afford all of these other children, um, et cetera, et cetera. And it just became like really, truly clear for me that the way that people of color in um, our country, I mean, it, you watch the 13th, it's, it's really, it's sad and it's disgusting and, and it, and it, like, it makes, it just makes, it's like a, like a gut punch. I think when you actually like witness that and when you hear these women's stories, she wasn't the only one. There was many in there that were fighting charges, um, a lot of drug charges, uh, you know, that, that had been in there for two, three years. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really sad. I get a question. I get, you know, a lot, <laughs> I get asked a lot whether the color of my skin had to do with the way that I was sentenced. Um, and I honestly can't answer that. I don't, I don't know. Um, because I don't, I can't take a look at like what all of the other sentences look like. I just know that for me, it is very, very clear to, I, I'll say that in regards to my first charge, because with my second charge, I had already said, I mean, it was a total, totally because of who I was that I was able to get access to treatment instead of jail time. Um, but with regards to my first sentence, I don't know, but I will say that, yes, um, with regards to paying a $50,000 bail and all of that other stuff, it absolutely had to do with the color of my skin and my socioeconomic status at the time. Um, so I know that you haven't seen the bling ring and I hadn't actually seen it until this week either, but, um, Emma Watson played you on the film, which is pretty major, and it was such a huge movie when it came out. Um, I guess not having seen it, but what's kind of your perspective on the film, and has that changed over the years? Um, it hasn't changed over the years. I think that, for me, the biggest thing was you, Sofia Coppola, really had an opportunity to shed light on and maybe make a commentary about um, why this happened. I think 
that there was a lot of context and um, nuance that was missing from the film. And that's just my personal opinion. I, like I said, I haven't seen it. I just think that there was an opportunity to create something really, truly interesting that talked about our, our obsession with celebrity culture, about drug addiction, about mental health, about all of these things, and it just missed the mark. Mm, and I, um, as I said, I hadn't seen it, but I honestly think that when you do watch a movie like that, I don't know whether it's just my upbringing or what, but when I was watching it, I was like, if I grew up in LA and if I had the opportunity, I would have been probably in a very similar friend group to yours. Um, and then to see afterwards that like the comments that grown women, I mean, Emma Watson herself made about you knowing the context of what was going on and what you'd been through. Um, and the fact that you were just a teenager at the time is off. Um, yeah, I always get in trouble when I talk about her. But I think it's okay to hold space for people and hold them accountable at the same time. So Emma Watson is a women's UN ambassador. She is someone who is revered as a feminist um, and is often praised for her role as said feminist. And I just find it really interesting that her commentary about who I was as a person, right, which was one of disgust, um, was pretty, it spoke volumes to how we as a society still view addiction and mental health you know, as something that is gross or disgusting or that, you know, it makes that population of people less than you are. You know what I mean? It just, it didn't really vibe with me. I, and I, yeah, I, I don't know. I find it really disheartening. I think that the conversation around addiction and recovery is slow to change but it is changing and I think well Izzy and I both think you're having a big part of that conversation with what you do which includes the um, Aloe House Recovery Centre which you run with your husband and the other work that you've done. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that because you've literally helped thousands of people at this point? Um, yeah so my husband and I own um, a treatment centre with um, a couple of other incredible partners. Um, and it, it all started because we saw a lot of young people going to AA. And while I think AA is incredible, um, and I think treatment in general is incredible, we just thought that there's a better way to serve this community of young people who are getting sober. And um, so we wanted to create an environment that was fun that where people could enjoy uh enjoy being sober and that's all it started as we just wanted a place where people we would have this friday night barbecue um we'd have a meeting around either the fireplace or the bonfire and we would just hang out and enjoy life and we wanted to show people 
that it was cool to be sober. And then eventually we started to recognize that what this really was, was it was teaching, it was treating people with humanity, with basic decency. It was about creating connections instead of trying to control people. And it became really successful. And so eventually we decided to get licensed and we've followed that model um, throughout the last decade of our treatment center. It's crazy to say that it's been almost 10 years, but it has. Um, And so, yeah, Aloe was grown out of this desire to help people in a way that didn't shame them, that instead empowered them to make healthy decisions for themselves and to really meet people where they're at. Um, And so we are a dual diagnosis treatment facility. We cover all levels of care, everything from detox, inpatient, outpatient, partial hospitalization, and sober living. Um, and we are just really honored to, to be doing this. And then a couple of years ago, um, I decided that I wanted to gently ease my way back into the media space with a podcast because I realized that I, I, felt like I was doing a disservice to not share what I've learned about my experience with people on a bigger scale. I think the treatment center was great, but I wanted to do something more. And so I started my podcast and then that same year wrote my book. And now I have the Life Reset course. And here we are. And I hope that we just grow more and more and more from here. That's so amazing. A quote we found really incredible of yours um, is that you would pick your worst day sober over your best day high, um, which is really amazing. Mm. Can you just quickly talk a little bit about how sobriety has changed your life? Sobriety certainly has not been an easy experience for me. There have been moments where I've been suicidally depressed. There have I've had three blood clots in my lung and almost died. I had um, a really traumatic birth experience. I have had you know severe crippling anxiety and a lot a lot of really challenging moments um and i guess for me it the shift happened when i no longer wanted to check out of my reality but instead wanted to check into it which is where the title of my podcast recovering from reality comes from it's like even in those, I, the, the, what I would have, what I'd sum it up for people with and what I'd like to share, I guess, is that we grow and we evolve when we sit in our pain, when we welcome it, when we see it as a friend rather than an enemy, when we see it as a tool rather than something that's trying to harm us. That often is really scary. You know, I'm really lucky in the last year and a half, I've had way more better days and I've had bad days, but I'm sure there's more challenging. I don't even like to say good or bad, more challenging days than easier days, I would say. But by sitting in those challenges and being there, it's led to an exploration of my mind and of my soul and has really allowed 
me to shape myself into who I am today and to continue evolving. And when I was in active addiction, I was just asleep. I was just using substances to push down all of the pain that I didn't want to deal with. Meanwhile, I was loading up pain on the back end, right? Like it was just like compounding pain. And so I think it's a gift every day that I'm sober, that I'm not doing that anymore. That I know that by adding on to my pain, I'm hurting myself and I don't have to do it. I have the tools to not do that anymore and, and that's a gift. So I wouldn't change that for the world and while getting high was so fun. I never like to lie to people about that. Like getting high was amazing. Like I loved getting high, um, but it wasn't serving me. And I know that I deserved a better life. And I couldn't even imagine that like this is the life that I would have built myself. But there's nowhere that I would rather be, even when it's really dark and really scary and really painful. Thank you so much for your time. And I think that the Angelina Jolie stuff you've actually achieved, which is good. <laughs> catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.